I'd like us to read together from Matthew's Gospel. And then after we've read from Matthew's Gospel, I think we'll have the announcements and the offering. And I'd like to read from Matthew chapter 16. We were looking at um, part of this passage last Sunday night. And um, I thought it would be useful to come back and take a look at um, part that we skipped over last Sunday evening. So Matthew chapter 16. And I want to begin reading from verse 13, which is on page 983 in the church editions of the New International Version, which is in the pews. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And we end the reading at the end of chapter 16. Now I think we're going to have the announcements. I think Is Alice doing the announcements? No? Who's doing the announcements? Notice Susan's not here, which is why I was wondering if somebody else... Okay, we have no Susan. Well then, let's press on. We'll keep moving because you never know what might happen yet. I want to look at this passage with you, Matthew chapter 16, for a few minutes together before we meet around the Lord's table and um, break bread together. As I say, we were looking at this last week, um, and I skipped over a part which people sometimes say, Uh, is the most difficult part and I did it deliberately so that we wouldn't get preoccupied by it and um, I thought it would be useful for us to come back to it um, this evening which is the section that I read um, from verses um, 17 to 20 really it's the bit where Jesus talks to Peter and says to Peter you're the rock and you will build my church the gates of hell will not overcome it I'll give you the keys of the kingdom and I wanted to take a little time to think about that this evening because as I say last week we dodged that bit but partly so that we could get the bigger picture and I want to come back and have a look at that now 
First thing I want to say is um, to remember the context of this. The context is set for us in verse 13, and you may remember some of the things that um, I referred to last week when I made a a reference to Michael Green's commentary on this passage. Um, And he talks in the passage about the area that Jesus chose to raise this issue with his disciples. Um, And he talks about it being about 25 miles northeast of the Sea of Galilee in the domain of Herod, Philip, which he had renamed Caesarea in honor of the emperor. It paid to do little things like that. And it has since changed its name. He says it was an amazing place. The name was derived from the fact that a grotto under the mountain there was reputed to be the birthplace of the god Pan, the most famous fertility symbol in ancient paganism. He was the legendary god of nature and his worship was important in this town which bore his name. The same mountain saw the source of the river Jordan, while all around the land was filled with the temples of classical pagan religion. And towering above them, resplendent in its white marble and massive dimensions, was the new temple to the emperor from which the city derived its changed name. And this was the place where Jesus chose to see if if any of his disciples really understood who he was. Um, I got a copy of the Times yesterday, and in the knowledge... I think it's really very interesting that the TV section is referred to as the knowledge. But anyway, in the knowledge, um, there's a a, a profile of a program which you can hear tomorrow evening on BBC Radio 4. It's called In the Footsteps of Jesus, presented by Edward Sturton, who has has presented a number of these kinds of uh, documentaries and, and programs. And it's very interesting that one of the things that in the um, blurb about the program they make reference to was exactly this incident in Caesarea Philippi as one of those interesting bits of information that sort of not everybody knows. And it's about how archaeology and other things have um, uncovered so much more of our information about this particular period. the, The guy who's writing about tomorrow night's program says, and there are wonderful little insights to save up for the water cooler. The idea of standing around the water cooler talking about what you listened to in Radio 4 last night. Such as the one about Jesus choosing to reveal that he was the Son of God in the very spot where a dirty great temple appointing Augustus Caesar to, to the gig had been built. So the documentary has not missed the point that Caesarea Philippi is hugely significant as a location for Jesus to do this. Because it's taken on paganism, it's taken on uh, political power, it's taken on the Roman Empire, everything. When Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And is going to get the answer, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So that's the backdrop to what's actually happening here. Um, What I want to do as we look at the verses in question here, verses 17 to 20, is first of all, take you back to the Old Testament. So you might like to come back to Isaiah chapter 22 with me as we just piece together what's going on here uh, on the hillside at Caesarea Philippi. It's Isaiah chapter 22 I want to go to first of all. You'll find it um, on page 705 in the church editions. This chapter in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 22, is a chapter in which there is a prophecy about the downfall of Jerusalem. Isaiah has been called by God to do many things and one of them is to speak about the inevitable coming of judgment on God's people because of their rejection of God and their lifestyle and that's essentially what verse 13, the first 13 verses are about they're more specifically about a vision of a siege on Jerusalem there were at least two uh, occasions when Jerusalem was led siege by other armies once by the Assyrians 
<coughs> who didn't take the city, they went away again, and once by the Babylonians later on who wrecked the place completely and devastated it and carried off people into exile. And chapter 22 is a vision of what life is going to be like in the city at that time and uh, the way in which people will be trying to demolish houses to reinforce the walls and all of that kind of thing. What I'm interested in is the bit that comes following that from verse 15. This is what the Lord, the Lord Almighty says. Go say to this steward, to Shebna, who is in charge of the palace. What are you doing here and who gave you permission to cut out a grave for yourself here? Hewing your grave on the height and chiseling your resting place in the rock. Beware, the Lord is about to take firm hold of you and hurl you away, O you mighty man. He will rule you up tightly like a ball and throw you into a large country. There you will die and there your splendid chariots will remain, you disgrace to your master's house. I will depose you from office and you will be ousted from your position. In that day I will summon my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I will drive him like a peg into a firm place. He will be a seat of honor for the house of his father. All the glory of his family will hang on him, its offspring and offshoots, all its lesser vessels, from the bowls to all the jars. Now, that might seem a very obscure little passage, but I think it's actually quite useful and quite helpful in understanding what's going on in Matthew chapter 16 at Caesarea Philippi. Uh, We're not exactly sure which seeds this refers to because the people who are named in it, we can't place in any other context. But it could easily have been the seeds that was led to Jerusalem by the Assyrians in the time of King Hezekiah. And essentially what is happening here is that as well as the vision of what's going on in the city during a time of siege, God speaks to this uh, important person within Jerusalem called Shebna about this person who is basically running the country and running the city on behalf of the king. He is the senior politician. He is the senior administrator within Jerusalem. And he's clearly in charge of the palace. That's the idea that is communicated to us. This this steward, verse 15, who is in charge of the palace. And what he's doing is he's fixing a grave for himself. It might sound a very strange thing for the prophet to be concerned about. But essentially what's going on here is he's picking the best spot to create a huge mausoleum for himself. For when he dies, whenever that might be. I don't think he envisages a siege. Shebna is not worried about that kind of thing. Shebna considers himself the most important person in Jerusalem. And he's going to hew out of the rock a tomb, a mausoleum or something that will mean that his memory is immortal in Jerusalem. And that's, that gives you an image of the kind of man he is. It's not the idea of preparing a grave for himself that God's upset about. It's the selfishness. It's the self-centered nature of this person. And God in verse 18 actually calls him a disgrace to his master's house. He is so self-serving and self-centered that he is nothing other than a disgrace. And verse 19, God says, Shebna, I'm going to remove. He's going to be deposed from office. God tells the prophet that in his place is going to be someone raised up called Eliakim, who will be God's servant, as opposed to this self-serving person called Shebna. 
And he will receive the robes that are taken from Shebna. He will have all of Shebna's authority handed over to him. And he will be a father to those in Jerusalem. Completely the opposite. Instead of simply serving himself and ripping the people off and worried about his own image, this person is going to be like a father to the nation, to the community. The people are going to be his concern. And then you have this very interesting little phrase. The way in which his authority will be seen, the way in which his acceptance by God will be seen, is that he will carry the key to the house of David. And apparently you would have carried it uh, on a sash or on a sling of some kind, because you weren't talking about little five-lever mortise locks in those days. You were talking about huge keys. So it would not have been unusual for someone of great authority to have been carrying around their shoulder the key. And what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Because he will be the person entrusted with the authority. A good, godly, steward, God's servant. In fact, he will be like a peg driven into the wall on which people will be able to hang things. That's how solid he will be. That's how secure he will be. Now, the idea of the key being given and authority being expressed in terms of opening and shutting is therefore not new to Matthew chapter 16. We meet it in the Old Testament, where it's speaking about the difference between a self-serving, selfish servant of the king in the palace, as opposed to a servant of God who's going to be put into that position, who will care for the people and be concerned about the people and be a rock, be a peg driven into the wall that is absolutely solid. So it seems that there's actually an Old Testament background to the kind of language that Jesus chooses to use when he's speaking to Peter. So let's go back to Matthew. But this time, instead of going straight back to Matthew 16, let's go to Matthew chapter 23, because there's something else that's worth seeing that will help make sense of this. Matthew chapter 23 is the chapter I'd like you to go to, first of all. It's on page 991. And you'll see if you're following in the New International Version, as some other versions have as well, there's a little heading there. And the little heading is simply talking about the seven woes. This is a passage in which Jesus declares judgment on the Pharisees and religious people who had been proving themselves to be very self-serving servants of God. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you, but don't do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for men to see, like Shebna's mausoleum. They make their phylacteries wide, and they love the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi. But you're not to be called rabbi, for you have only one master. And you're all brothers, and do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. The greatest among you will be your servant, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. What makes Jesus angry about these Pharisees? Verse 13 makes it very clear. They shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. 
These people have become essentially the Shebnaz of Jesus' day. They have become more self-serving and self-centered than they were ever intended to be. And the woes that Jesus declares reflects the judgment that God declares on Shebna. Their sin, their crime, is shutting the kingdom in the faces of the poor in spirit, the meek, and those for whom the kingdom is intended. And that's a very important thing to bear in mind as we go back to Matthew chapter 16. And let's go back there. Because when you go back to Matthew chapter 16, notice the broader context in which all of this is set for us by Matthew. Because at the beginning of chapter 16, just like at the beginning of chapter 15, there's a lot to be said about the Pharisees. They are clearly seen to be in opposition to Jesus. And that's part of the context of this declaration of Jesus Christ as Lord of Caesarea Philippi. So there are at least two important settings for us to hear what's going on here. The first is Caesarea Philippi, the physical place. The place where there was the temple, the Caesar Augustus, the place where there was the pagan temples, the place where uh, the god Pan was supposed to have had his birth under the earth and all the rest of it. But there's another context which is important and that is in the context of all of these false servants of God who we meet at the beginning of chapter 15 and the beginning of chapter 16 the Pharisees and what we hear happening in verses 18 to 20 of the passage that we read together earlier is really Jesus declaring Peter to be an Eliakim he's complete opposite of the Pharisees these religious teachers the Shebnas of Isaiah's day And what Jesus is saying very clearly, that on the confession that Peter has made, and on Peter himself, God is going to build something completely new. It would be quite wrong to imply that Peter himself has no part of this. The text is very clear that you are Peter and on this rock. And the rock can't be just a reference to the confession that he makes. R.T. France puts it this way. Peter has declared Jesus' true significance. Now Jesus in turn reveals where Peter stands in the working out of God's purposes. The word play and the whole structure of the passage demands that this verse is every bit as much Jesus' declaration about Peter as was Peter's declaration of Jesus. Of course, it's on the basis of Peter's confession that Jesus declares his role as the church's foundation. But it's to Peter and not just his confession that the rock metaphor is applied And Jesus is saying essentially that here is someone who can be an Eliakim as opposed to the Shebnas who are supposed to be in charge of the scriptures and helping the people see the kingdom of God. The Pharisees believed they had the authority to bind and to loose. Again, R.T. France puts it this way. He says, binding and loosing were technical terms for the pronouncements of the rabbis on what was or was not permitted To bind was to forbid, to loose was to permit. But what Jesus is saying, particularly when you come to Matthew chapter 23, but is implying all the way up to that, is that instead of loosing people to understand the kingdom of God, what they do is they shut the kingdom in people's faces. So it is Peter who will be given the keys to open it to others and to manage the kingdom as a leader in Christ's church. What has been bound or loosed in heaven, and if you're following the church edition um, and look down at uh, the footnote in verse 19, you'll see it can be translated not just um, what will, but what has 
uh, or what will have been uh, loosed in heaven, you will loose on earth, or bound in heaven, you will bind on earth. And Peter will, as a trustworthy steward, declare as bound or loosed on earth the things that are bound or loosed in heaven. For those of you who are of a pedant nature, France points out that the language used here is of future perfects. It's not that heaven will ratify Peter's independent decision, but that Peter will pass on decisions that have been already made in heaven. So that's essentially what's happening. So let me just summarize it very briefly. In this passage, in these verses, in verses 17 to 20, Jesus is talking to and about Peter. He's playing with this idea of rock. Peter's name, Kephas, means rock. And on this rock, this rock of what he has said, this confession, this understanding, and who he is as a person, Christ will build his church. The context is his confession of Jesus as the Messiah, and that will be core to the building of his church. But Peter will prove to be a good steward in the kingdom, like Eliakim who replaced the Shebna of his day. And that's the significance of the talk about the keys. Peter will loose and will bind in accord with heaven's thinking and be a means of opening the kingdom to many others. But he won't be the only one, because as we'll see later on in Matthew 18, and you'll see in John chapter 20, this is something that all the disciples are called to do. That's essentially what this passage is about. It has become, in the history of the church, a passage that's used to debate the authority of papal authority and uh, the passing on of papal authority and all the rest of it, but essentially that's what's going on here. So the other question I have as we look at this very briefly this evening is the simple question, so what? And I want to ask one simple question of all of us. We look at the passage, we get a sense of what it's about, a sense of what's going on here, so what? Well, the question I want to leave as a so what is simply this. What kind of people are we in God's kingdom? We can be Shebna's. Or we can be be Eliakim's. We can be Pharisees. Or we can be Peter's. We can be people who are self-serving, name-making, selfish, hoarding and exploiting of others. Or we can be the kind of people who are primarily servants of God. Ready to take on authority and responsibility in God's kingdom. Who have a heart for others, the fathers and mothers to those in Jerusalem trustworthy enough to carry the key of the house of David, the keys of the kingdom, so that other people, for other people, the kingdom might be opened up and made available. Peter, in what was to follow, was to prove a very ordinary human being. This person and this confession that he has made. While it's going to be fundamental to all that's going to happen after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this person has his weaknesses. And he has his weaknesses, as we see when he denies the Lord Jesus. He has his weaknesses when he struggles to accept Gentiles as fellow Christians. He has lots of weaknesses which are not hidden from us in Scripture. But nevertheless, he is a committed servant of God. And despite all his weaknesses and with all his weaknesses, he is a reliable one who can be entrusted to the task of opening the kingdom for other people. And we see him do it. We see him do it in Acts chapter 2 as he preaches. And thousands of people that day are added to the church. We see it in Acts chapter 10 as he encounters Gentiles and opens the way for Gentiles to understand and to see the kingdom of God. He's like a peg in a firm place as well as a rock, despite all his weaknesses. 
So I'm not asking, are you a perfect person? And I'm not asking, are you the kind of person who will never make mistakes? That's not what I'm asking. But I'm asking, are you and I the kind of people who are the Shebnas, who in church life, in family life, in our commercial life, are essentially people who are self-serving, people who are out to make a name for ourselves, to hew a grave for ourselves. It sounds a very negative way of expressing it, but it was all about his reputation and his legacy and his name living on. And, And truthfully, we can be sucked in by those kinds of things. Is that the kind of person we are? Because if it is, then our role within the kingdom of God and the purposes of God is exceedingly limited. Or are we like Eliakim? Are we like Peter? Are we the kind of people who are willing to seek to be servants of God with all our frailties, with all our weaknesses, and with all the kind of mistakes that Peter makes, we will make too. But nevertheless, willing to make that straightforward, simple simple affirmation that Jesus Christ is Lord and to give ourselves faithfully to his service. I think this passage, rather than be at the heart of a huge debate of the history of the church and who should be Pope or whether there should be a Pope and all the rest of it and the kind of Catholic Protestant thing that it gets sucked into, I think this passage presents actually to us a very simple challenge. A challenge for you and a challenge for me to take and to think about as we break bread together around this table. What I'd like us to do is to think a little bit about what we're going to do as we remember the Lord Jesus Christ and his death for us. Uh, We're going to work our way through a few readings and prayers. We're going to sing a few songs together. And then we're going to have the opportunity to share together in the bread and in the wine. And I'll explain a little more as we go along. The scripture gives us clear teaching about what happens when we meet together to remember the Lord Jesus and his death. And this is what Paul has to say to the church in Corinth as he writes to them. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death. Until he comes. So, what is the significance of the Lord's Supper? The significance of what we do lies in our obedience to Jesus Christ as we do this in remembrance of him as he has commanded. The significance lies in that we are recalling the significance of his death on the cross in which he established a new covenant in his blood. We're telling out the story of the good news, proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes and declare that we are waiting for his coming again when all things will be transformed in his glory. I've got here a kind of creed. It's part of a a series of affirmations of faith that were written by Martin Luther a very long time ago. This is one of them. And it's a statement of what belief in Jesus Christ looks like and actually means. And I want to read it to you. I believe that Jesus Christ, true God, begotten of the Father from eternity and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord, who has redeemed me, a lost and condemned creature, secured and delivered me from all sins, from death and from the power of the devil, not with silver and gold, but with his holy and precious blood, 
and with his innocent sufferings and death, in order that I might be his, live under him in his kingdom, and serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness, even as he is risen from the dead and lives and reigns to all eternity. This is most certainly true. That's what we affirm as we declare our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and sharing together in this bread and in this wine. Here is a simple prayer of confession, which I'm going to say, if you would like to say it with me, then please feel free to do so. Almighty God, who forgives all who truly repent, have mercy upon us, pardon and deliver us from our sins. Confirm and strengthen us in all goodness and keep us in life eternal through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.